Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirchner. On September 27, 2018, Governor Jerry Brown of California signed into law landmark legislation that would give family courts discretion to award sole or joint ownership of a household pet in divorce or separation proceedings. Now, importantly, the California Family Court has the authority to consider the care of the pet, including keeping the pet free from acts of harm or cruelty, as well as providing the pet with food, water, veterinary care, and safe from protected shelter. California is now the third state in the country, after Alaska and Illinois, to enact a law that permits family law judges to consider a pet's welfare or well-being as part of the decision-making process in dividing property between separating or divorcing couples. This is so important that I want to discuss it with our good friend, attorney Mark Momjian. Mark, a native Philadelphian, has been practicing family law for more than three decades and is the leading author of a text on the law of domestic relations in Pennsylvania, currently in its 12th edition and published by Thomson Reuters. Mr. Momjean is an adjunct professor of law at the Villanova University School of Law, where he teaches family law. He is also an adjunct professor of psychiatry at the Drexel University School of Medicine, where he teaches mental health law. He's the author of dozens of articles about dynamic trends in family law, with a particular emphasis on the intersection of biotechnology and domestic relations. Welcome back to the show, Mark. Thank you, Dr. Laurie. Mark, why is California's new law so important from an historical perspective? Well, in terms of animal law, as California goes, so does the nation. And as the most populous state, as a state with almost 40 million residents, Um, When California enacts an important piece of legislation, uh, like the one we're talking about, other states are bound to follow. In fact, there's a movement in tiny Rhode Island uh, to amend its statute to allow judges to decide uh, cases involving pets in the context of separation and divorce. And I'm sure now that California's law will go into effect January 1 of 2019. Once that happens, other states are bound to follow. How would family law courts decide disputes over pets, say, a generation ago? Very differently. I mean, even today, pets are considered personal property And it's a tough concept for advocates like you who understand that that's a very tough uh, label to place on any sentient being. But 15, 20 years ago, courts might not even get in the mix when it comes to a dispute over a companion animal. Uh, My late father, Albert Momjian, argued a case about 15 years ago in Pennsylvania, and it was before the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, and the lower court Uh, in a dispute over a dog named Barney, uh, said that the dog was no different than a table or a lamp. And my father was so offended by it, uh, he took the case pro bono to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. But at that time, the courts weren't ready to deal with progressive new ways of thinking about animals caught in disputes like this. So there's been a lot of change, I think, over the last 10 or 15 years where individual judges and individual courts are trying to do more than divide property uh, like we see on TV. Animals are a different category, no question. Mark, can you tell us who sponsored this legislation and was there any opposition to the bill? 
It's interesting. The assembly member in California was someone by the name of Bill Quirk, who is out near the San Francisco Bay Area, and he is a nuclear physicist. Uh, He got his Ph.D. in astrophysics from Columbia. He did postdoc work at Caltech. And he's the one who introduced the legislation in the California Assembly, where it passed by a very big margin, 57 to 4. But believe it or not, there were opponents to the bill, including a group of uh, certified family lawyers who thought that uh, expanding the law to allow judges to make these decisions would prolong uh, domestic relations litigation. But clearly, the California Senate passed it by 34 to 3. The governor signed it into law on September 27, as you said in your intro. So uh, this is a very forceful and affirmative step in the right direction for animal rights. Are you surprised that there was such overwhelming support of this bill in the California legislature? No, not really, because California has always been in the vanguard when it comes to animal law and animal animal protection. Um, in the California Domestic Violence Protective Act, there is a provision uh, that offers protection to animals uh, who are involved in, um, you know, domestic violence situations. So California has been in the vanguard there. And like I said, I think I've said this to you in prior uh, interviews, Stanford Law School is one of the leading schools in the country on animal law. They have a journal of animal law and policy. They have a student animal legal defense fund. Uh, UCLA has an animal law and policy uh, uh, grant program that allows scientists and and non-scholars to Uh, get involved in empirical studies to study animal law reform. So I think while there's certainly going to be issues and challenges in California, like there are in other states, California is very progressive and is certainly a leader in the country when it comes to the evolution of these rights. The new law refers to household pets. How does this law define household pets, and do you anticipate any problems with that definition? Yeah, the law doesn't uh, define household pets, and this was, I think, a problem with the Illinois statute that was passed earlier uh, in the year uh, where they didn't define the word companion animal. Probably a household pet deals with uh, the things that we think of, dogs and cats, but probably it doesn't apply to service animals. It doesn't apply to livestock. It doesn't apply to racehorses. Uh, And I think, understandably, it's the type of animal that is um, enjoyed uh, and loved in a household. And I think, you know, we're going to have to wait to see as the law develops whether uh, species of non-dogs, non-cats come before the courts, whether or not they will be treated. Keep in mind that the statute just passed by the California legislature and signed into law uh, by the governor gives courts the discretion to deal with joint custody or sole ownership so that if a judge thought that something really did not require court intervention, the judge could decline to intervene in California. Uh, But we're talking about a typical case where an estranged husband and wife or two spouses 
uh, are fighting over ownership or custody and control of an animal as part of an overall divorce proceeding. Keep in mind that this happens in very uh, small percentage of cases, even though those cases are on the rise, let's say, in the last five to 10 years. Mark, in your experience, or in what you remember your father's experience was in working with divorcing and separating couples, what are the most frequent problem areas in determining who gets to keep the pets? For the most part, uh, when people have a dispute, uh, it involves um, how the uh, pet is going to be transported back and forth. Um, Some um, litigants in a divorce case might say, I want the dog to stay primarily at my home. And, you know, if I go on vacation, you can take care of it or, you know, that sort of thing. But when another party to a divorce litigation says, look, I want the dog to be with me when I have the kids so that, you know, they all come together in a group. Those are the types of disputes that arise in the context of separation and divorce. They're not the only ones, but, you know, in terms of the the litigation, the kind of thing that, uh, you know, you see on the news every once in a while where people go all out, those are the types of cases where people uh, really get hot uh, about. Now, the other thing is, of course, if there's any accusation that someone during a marriage didn't take care of a pet, uh, didn't properly administer, let's say, um, medical care or, or shelter, you know, someone who left a dog untethered outside for long periods of time. That might be a case where somebody comes in in a divorce and says, look, I want sole ownership of this um, companion animal or household pet. And I think, you know, the new California statute gives judges the right to hear that evidence. Mark, do you have any further comments about how animal law is evolving? I think this California law is a great uh, step in the right direction, but I think that all over politicians are seeing how animal law legislation resonates with voters. Uh, we have, I listened to a program that you did very recently, Dr. Lori, on puppy mills, and uh, that really moved me because there are thousands of puppy mills and millions of puppies uh, who are born in these really terrible conditions. And I think now that politicians are looking at these uh, uh, areas as ones that really affect voters because they know that dogs and cats and other companion animals are parts of people's families. And I think this legislation in California is a big step. Mark, earlier you mentioned your father. Why don't you share a little bit about him with the listeners? I really, uh, I, I really have to tell you, he passed away two years ago, but I feel he's on the phone with us. Aww. You know, I really, really do. He, he was the first uh, chair of the Animal Law Committee of the Pennsylvania Bar Association. And he believes so much in this area that if he felt that there was a dispute over an animal, um, when the law did not cater to deciding these disputes, he bent over backwards with his own client and the opposing party to make sure they did the right thing for the animal and the children. You know, that was a very prescient way of looking at cases that people, I think, would be surprised to hear a lawyer take that much time and effort. But for my dad, it was a simple uh, equation. His Airedale Terrier gave him so much love and affection that, you know, he was paying tribute to her by, by really trying to help couples resolve their disputes. Mark Momjian, thank you very much for joining us once again on Animals Today. Thank you, Dr. Lori.
Here's a question for you. What do game show host Bob Barker, actress Tippi Hedren, journalist and author Jane Velez Mitchell, and rock legend Paul Rogers all have in common? That's right. Each one has been a guest on Animals Today. In fact, people from all walks of life, like scientists, lawyers, dog and cat rescuers, and whale protectors, have shared their views and described their work on behalf of animals on the show. So keep up on the latest and most important animal news and issues from around the world each week right here. Make sure to join the discussion on Facebook and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. And of course, I welcome your ideas and suggestions. So feel free to contact me at Dr. Lori, that's D-R-L-O-R-I, at animalstodayradio.com. See you next time. Welcome back to Animals Today. Did you see the photo, that horrific photo of the Idaho Fish and Game Commissioner? He's posing with his dead family of baboons. He's just killed them, four of them, and he's gloating and gleeful. And evidently, he shared this photo with too many of his friends, and it got out. This image has sparked outrage and disgust, all appropriate in my opinion. Here to talk about this is Iris Ho, Senior Specialist of Wildlife Programs Policies for Humane Society International. Welcome, Iris. Um, it's a pleasure to be here with you and your, your listeners, Peter, um, despite under the circumstances. What do we know about these photos? Uh, what, they, what do they depict and why were they taken? Um, I mean, the photos that you mentioned in the intro are um, abhorrent, horrific. Um, but um, actually, Mr. Fisher, um, he did not only shot uh, baboons, uh, but he also actually shot at least 14 animals, according to news reports uh, during his trip. Um, he also killed a giraffe, um, leopard, um, and buffalo, among other animals. Um, and, you know, what really bothers and, uh, uh, you know, all of us, um, including hunters, um, is not just the photos uh, that were so revolting, um, but also the detailed descriptions um, that he sent around along with the photos. Um, and they are actually very telling um, that, about the mindset of trophy hunters. Um, for example, the baboon photos, uh, you might have read uh, that. You know, the reason why um, he, sh uh, he killed those baboons was because his wife wanted to watch him and get a feel of Africa. And that's why he shot a whole family of baboons. Um, and for the leopard photo, um, he wrote um, that, you know, hey, I shot a leopard. I'm so lucky. I'm so, you know, super cool. It's super lucky. And the bottom line is, you know, the Fisher's um, actions reveal the ugly truth about trophy hunting. Um, trophy hunting is not any form of conservation. It is about killing an animal to obtain a trophy or for bragging rights. So he is now the former Idaho Fish and Game Commissioner. He was asked to resign, wasn't he? Yes, he he has uh, res he actually resigned yesterday. He submitted a resignation letter to the governor of Idaho, and the governor has accepted his resignation. The governor um, actually put out um, a press release 
And uh, in the press release, uh, Governor um, of Idaho, uh, Governor uh, Otto, um, he said that, you know, he expects his wildlife uh, commission, fish and game commissioner uh, to behave um, in an ethical matter. And and so the fact that uh, Fisher uh, resigned uh, showed poor uh, judgment mm-hmm. uh, because the governor, but the governor expects um, uh, all his commissioners uh, to to demonstrate good judgment. And the governor actually uh, called for his resignation, and he has accepted the resignation mm-hmm. since. So is it your experience that people in this position, game commissioners, tend to be hunters themselves? And uh, and if so, he really uh, stepped over the line. Yeah, I mean, probably most, if not all of these um, state fish and game commissions are hunters. Um, and actually, Sam is true uh, for federal bodies. Um, there's a, a federal advisory council. It's called Inter- International Wildlife Conservation Council. Uh, it was established by Ontario Secretary uh, Ryan Zinke last year. And the council is stacked with trophy hunters, uh, firearm lobbyists, or political uh, campaign donors. Um, and, and that's why, you know, HSUS, Humane Society of the United States um, and Humane Society International, we have long been criticizing uh, the lack of balance uh, and neutrality in these wildlife policy-making bodies. Uh, we, it's, it is our view that wildlife management is ripe for reform in our country. Um, and, you know, among many other things, we really need a much broader and ecosystem-based approach uh, to management that favors non-game species as well as game species. And also, so many of us are not hunters and the perspective of us non-hunters should also be included in wildlife management. Um, I mean, there are photographers, um, wildlife watchers, you know, us hikers, uh, we frequent um, state or national parks um, and national preserves. There are far more of us than, than hunters. And, and therefore, you know, we think that these wildlife uh, fish and game commissions should have a higher percentage of, uh, of the public interest um, of, of non-hunters rather than trophy hunters. Kitty Block, who is the acting president and CEO of the Humane Society and Humane Society International, wrote a blog about this, and that's really what caught our attention uh, after Mm -hmm. we saw the images. What were her main messages in that? Our our messages um, are several. First, uh, trophy hunting is never ethical or moral. Um, and and second, uh, like I said earlier, uh, state and federal uh, wildlife manager uh, managing uh, bodies, they are entrusted with making decisions about managing wildlife. And no one who displays uh, such a reckless uh, disregard for wildlife should be in such a position. Um, and third, you know, I think the, mes- the message was that the majority of the public opposes trophy hunting. Um, trophy hunting organizations uh, such as Safari Club International, they have a tremendous sway um, and outsized influence in the current administration's wildlife policy. And their views run contrary to the value of the majority of the public. You know, you hear things like trophy hunting benefits the host countries. It injects cash into their economies. And uh, Mm -hmm. you also mentioned that it does not serve conservation in any way. These are uh, persistent uh, stories, aren't they? I mean, yeah. I mean, those claims are are really, they're, they're a sham. 
list. I mean, Water Palmer, if you remember, who, who killed yeah. the Feast of the Lions in, in, in Zimbabwe, and also Blake uh, Fisher, this commissioner from Idaho. I mean, they used their wealth uh, to travel halfway around the world, um, not for conservation, um, not for food, and definitely not for the local communities. It's really uh, scandalous and really disrespectful um, that, you know, Americans have such a prominent role in trophy hunting, and it's time to end it. Iris, any final thoughts about this issue? I, you know, I would really strongly encourage uh, your listeners, if they have a chance to, to visit um, Africa, you know, while I'm watching, you know, tell your, your operators that you don't support trophy hunting because trophy hunting operators, they like to brag about how much they contribute uh, to conservation and to the local economies. Um, and in addition to that, even if you haven't had a chance to visit Africa to see wildlife, we can still, you know, help protect um, African wildlife. Let your um, elected officials know that as a non-hunter, you don't support uh, policies uh, that favor trophy hunting or favor trophy hunters. Uh, you don't want your interest and your view to be represent, represented by people who don't share your value. And so I would say, you know, contact your governor, you know, state legislators, uh, or even members of Congress. I mean, we have to show up and we have to speak up for animals. Iris Ho with Humane Society International. Thank you very much for joining us on the show. Thank you so much, Peter. More with animals today after this break. Hi, this is Lori. And it's Peter here. And make sure you check us out at animalstodayradio.com. Animalstodayradio.com. And visit us on Facebook. And you can also subscribe on iTunes. Listen to us on iTunes. AnimalsTodayRadio.com. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to the show. I'm pleased to welcome Matt Ellerbeck. He is a favorite popular guest on the show. He is a snake advocate and conservationist and always brings us a wealth of uh, interesting perspective about them. Well, hi, Matt. Hi, how are you today? Just fine. Okay, I thought I would throw out these uh, two little tidbits here, and maybe you can uh, react. Recently, we uh, had Dr. Robert Reed, a veterinarian who, uh, who is also a frequent guest and gives us all sorts of perspective on uh, the health of our uh, companion animals. And we were talking about snake bites in dogs and prevention and treatment and the vaccines and other related topics about uh, snakes and, uh, and dogs. And uh, he gratefully reminded us that these snakes that we're talking about, usually rattlesnakes, they are uh, part of the ecosystem. They have an important role and we shouldn't be afraid of them. We should just uh, let them be, which was nice to get that reminder. And then just uh, today, uh, I saw a news report coming from a small town in New Mexico, and uh, they're having uh, problems with skunks and uh, snakes. And uh, the skunks, the police are responsible for relocating them, and they trap them, and they just move them. And uh, the snakes, however, they have no mechanism really to deal with the snakes, usually rattlesnakes also, except for just shooting them. And it's really sad that they don't have the, the resources and or the training or whatever that that is the fate of these snakes who uh, who haven't done anything wrong. So... Uh, uh, what do you think about it? Any any of those things? Well, the first thing is I think what the veterinarian touched on is really important to remind people that, you know, snakes 
are absolutely vital to the health of the ecosystem. So if you care about animals and nature and wildlife and the environment as a whole, you have to accept snakes. You can't have a healthy environment without snakes. So if you want to be, you know, a wildlife lover or, or a nature lover or you like birding or you like aspects of nature, you have to remember that to have all those things, we absolutely have to have the snakes. And then the second thing is um, what you mentioned was said was, you know, about just leaving them alone. That is the absolute best advice that you can give someone about snakes and it's unfortunate that so many people are afraid of them and most of the things you hear about them in the media or in movies you sort of just really portrays them in such a negative light that all snakes are these murderous monsters that are trying to attack and kill people and that if you step out into an area where there's rattlesnakes they will chase you down and kill you but really that is the furthest thing from the truth. Snakes are very shy animals, for the most part, that would like to avoid people whenever they can. I was up in the Georgian Bay, surrounded by rattlesnakes a couple summers ago. There, I was in between where there was two of them, and the snakes were just kind of sitting under these rocks, coiled up. They weren't trying to attack me or chase me or hurt me or anything like that. They were just kind of sitting there quietly. And when I approached a little closer to get a photograph, the one rattled very slightly. And that was its way of saying, you know, just leave me alone. And because I didn't pursue any closer, I didn't try to capture the animal or anything like that, it didn't strike at me it didn't bite it didn't even rattle anymore it just gave that initial rattle and that was that animal's way of saying just leave me alone so it's funny that people have these horrible misconceptions about snakes when really you know they want nothing to do with us yeah. and over the course of the last 13 years I have literally seen thousands of snakes in the wild. Um, and I was in a rattlesnake den uh, last fall, or no, sorry, a water snake den last fall. And I was surrounded by, you know, dozens and dozens of these large, heavy-bodied snakes. And none of them tried to attack me or bite me or wrap around me or anything like that. So, it, again, it's just trying to use my own experiences to reiterate the fact that snakes are not trying to hurt us. And in fact, NC State University did a study a few years ago where they found that almost all snake bites on people that happen in the United States are because someone is trying to capture or kill the snake. So if you're out hiking or camping or cottaging and you see a snake and you're afraid of them or you're a little wary about them, you don't have to have someone come out and shoot it or kill it or get rid of it. All you have to do is walk away and leave that animal alone, and I promise it's not going to hurt you. And again, having them there is it, it, incredibly vital to the ecosystem. So that's my main message is just to kind of promote coexistence and let people know that we can coexist with these animals. They're not out to get us. Matt, when you talk to children, I know you uh, like to do a lot of educating about snakes. Um, do they come in with a preconception about them? Are those fears present uh, when you talk to them, or are they uh, just open, ready to learn about snakes? Most children are completely open to snakes. In fact, I was um, out yesterday, and I had I was I had a little ball python with me, and there was a little girl that immediately I said, did you want to pet the snake? And she said, oh, yes. And you could see her mother 
like kind of standing in the background all horrified so you know kids are so open-minded but unfortunately those you know behaviors can be learned a learned thing from from their parents so it's unfortunate that you know if you know adults listening to this if you want your kids to grow up with an, an appreciation for animals and wildlife and 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 that means all animals not just the you know quote unquote cute and cuddly ones it's really important to try to you know have positive attitudes about it because you can pass them on to their your children but luckily you know when when i do do outreach and i'm going to be doing i'm actually doing a, a march break camp tomorrow um, and I'll be talking to a bunch of kids, you know, they usually have a very open mind. Now, sometimes older kids, you know, they can lose touch of that. And I remember last summer I was at an event and I had a big rat snake. And some of the kids actually, when they first saw it, they were like, oh, my God, kill it, kill it. It's awful. And, you know, immediately kind of had those really negative responses. But, you know, I sat down with them all. They kind of formed a semicircle, and I said, look, look at this snake. It's sitting here with me, surrounded by all these people, and what is it doing? It's not biting. It's not hissing. It's not wrapping around me. It's not trying to hurt anyone. It's just sitting here on my arm like it would a tree branch, and they all kind of looked at it and observed it, and so, okay, he's right. It's not doing anything aggressive and then I said now watch I'll walk around if you want to pet him you can you don't have to but I just want to let you guys know if you want to just you know very gently pet the snake and then I you know the first few children pet him and you can see the other ones watching their peers and they see them touch the snake and the snake again is not being aggressive it's its body language isn't changing and by the end of it the ones that initially were like oh it's awful kill it we're petting the snake and saying they loved it. So sometimes, you know, the great thing about kids is often they are open-minded, but even the ones that have those initial negative responses, it's just about getting them to look at it from a different perspective. And then often once they do, and they have those positive experiences with the snakes, you can change their mind. So that is a really wonderful experience to, you know, have those moments. We've been speaking with Matt Ellerbeck, and to learn more about snakes, go to saveallsnakes.com. Matt, some older kids, teenagers and young adults, uh, they want to have snakes and other reptiles as pets. There's something they find interesting or alluring or exotic or dangerous or whatever. What do you think about having snakes as pets? I have a lot of mixed feelings about this. Um, You know, just like dogs and cats, there's a lot of snakes that do end up, you know, in captive settings that need to be rescued and adopted because, you know, they were captive bred. They can't be sent back into the wild, especially, say, if there's a snake that ends up online, someone's trying to find a home for it, and the snake is a boa constrictor. They're native to Central America. You can't release them into the wilds of, you know, the United States. So those animals do need good homes just the same as domesticated dogs and cats do. The issue that I have with it is that you're right. Unfortunately, some people don't look at it in the way that, okay, this is an animal that is now in captive settings. It can't go back to the wild because of many variables. So it needs a good forever home. They're looking a lot of, and not all of them, but a lot of them, unfortunately, like you said, do look at it as, oh, you know, snakes are scary and the shock value and the novelty of it. And I, I just don't see it 
as you know, uh, you know, one of these things where it's an individual trying to contribute to the betterment of that animal or, or its quality of life. It's more about having it almost as a prop, and you know, and I cringe when I see that because if you know they're trying to obtain these animals to, you know, be sensationalistic with them and scare other people with, you know, it it's just backing up all those negative things. So, you know, there it's, it's a very complicated issue. Like, you know, if there is a snake that needs a home, I would love if a caring individual would look after it and give it a good home, but. You know, I absolutely, like I said, it, it's. I think it's so detrimental when people are wanting to obtain them purely, you know, to feed their own ego because in their mind they're now, you know, having dominion over something that's scary and, and, and freaks people out and, and they're dangerous and all of that. And I think the people that get them for those reasons are just doing so much more harm to the animals as a whole because it just backs up all those negative things that we were just talking about. So in a, in a large portion of that, I don't think it's a good thing. We're speaking with Matt Ellerbeck, snake advocate and conservationist. And uh, Matt, briefly, let's conclude with your thoughts about the problem with invasive snakes, such as in the Everglades, where they are just wrecking the natural ecosystem. Uh, what I don't see any great solution for that problem. They have teams that are going out hunting them and killing them and turning them into, you know, boots and belts. Yeah, again, it's an extremely complicated issue. Um, Invasive species are absolutely horrid for the environment and to a whole myriad of animals. So again, if anyone listening to this, you can do your part. If you ever do obtain a pet, and you don't want it anymore, no matter what it is, do not release it into the wild. Yeah. Because, again, you're just contributing to that problem. Um, the pythons in Florida, yeah, there isn't an easy answer to that. Often, from just looking at many other examples, often when invasives are introduced into an area, it's very, very hard to get rid of them. You can sort of employ mitigation efforts um, to alleviate the problem a little bit, but it is very, very hard to to stop it completely. So my kind of thought process is, you know, at least use that example for education and and try to prevent it from happening again. It's really unfortunate that, you know, again, what we were just talking about, that when they're trying to remove the snakes, often I feel like there is a lot of sensationalism around it where it's not, okay, we're trying to do this to help the ecosystem where, you know, oh, we're python hunters and we're killing these scary animals and we're going to make them into boots. Like, I just feel like, the approach, again, comes from a very um, a, a bad place. Well, thanks. That's Matt Ellerbeck, snake advocate and conservationist. We look forward to speaking with you uh, shortly again. And thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. More with animals today after the break. So do cats and dogs really fight like cats and dogs? This is from The Guardian. Research explored the relationships between cats and dogs living under the same roof, and they found that while cats might feel more nervous around dogs, they appear to have little trouble in asserting themselves. This was an online survey of 748 homeowners. 80% felt their pets were comfortable with one another, while only 3% declared that their cats and dogs could not stand one another. But cats were by far more antagonistic. No surprise there. 
Homeowners reported that cats were three times more likely to threaten their dog housemates than vice versa, and cats were 10 times more likely to injure them in a fight. More than a fifth of dogs reportedly picked up their toys to show them to cats, compared with only 6% of cats doing the same for dogs. Researchers at the University of Lincoln launched the study to find out what made for happy cat-dog relationships. They argue an amicable coexistence is important for welfare and could reduce the risk of pets ending up in a rehoming center. Here are some more numbers. While 57% of owners said their cats hissed, spat, and swatted at dogs, and 18% said their dogs threatened cats, less than 10% of cats and only 1% of dogs ever harmed the other animal. One of the researchers believed the reason may lie in domestication. Because dogs have been domesticated for longer and are more easily trained than cats, they may be better able to control their behavior. And cats might need more reassurance that they are safe under the same roof. She says it's easier for dogs to be happier around cats than for cats to be happy around dogs. And finally, the researchers found that the best predictor for a happy cat-dog relationship was the cat's age when the cat began living with the dog, implying the younger the cat, the better the chance the dog and cat will get along. Now, all that being said, I have to tell you from personal experience that sure, there's a great chance cats and dogs can coexist happily together, but you always have to be super cautious when introducing a new dog to your resident cat or a new cat to your resident dog. There are different ways and steps you can and should take when the introduction takes place, and these steps depend on which is the incoming animal and which is the resident animal. And of course, there are many resources available online to help you through this process, but you can't just assume that an individual cat will get along with an individual dog or vice versa. Even if the dog has had experience with cats and the cat has lived with dogs before, proceed cautiously during this introduction process by just placing a dog and cat together in the same space and hope that they're going to get along would be extremely irresponsible and could potentially result in a horrible outcome. So steps you need to take during this initial introductory period. And it might take a while and some effort on your part. So taking the proper precautions, which might include keeping your dog on a leash initially, making sure your cat has an escape route and a place to hide. Keep your dog and cat separated when you're not home until you're certain your cat will be safe. Again, many online sources to help you pave the way to a smooth integration of cats and dogs. Halloween is approaching, and what are some of the risks for your dogs and cats on this holiday? Well, some of this information is from the blog Pet FBI. Halloween treats with chocolate or the common sweetener xylitol. Well, most people know about the dangers of chocolate if consumed by your pet. And we've spoken many times on the show about xylitol, which is a poison to your pet. Products containing xylitol include many candies and gums and mints. These are Halloween items your pet can come across on the ground that he or she can easily snatch up and consume. And it's not just the mints, candies and gum and chocolates, but xylitol is found in so many other products your dogs and cats might find tasty. Peanut butter, nut butters, dental products like toothpaste, mouthwash, just to name a few. So just be mindful of this. When trick-or-treaters come to your door, your dog or cat may panic and escape. 
Doors are opening and closing all the time. People in strange-looking costumes approaching. You can see this might be an easy time for a scared pet to escape. Best just to put your pet in a quiet, secure area somewhere inside the house. And you don't have to worry about the risk of your pet bolting out the front door. Or if you're like us and you don't want strangers coming to your house at all, another option might be just to turn off all your lights and pretend you're not home. It's easy for us to do that since our neighborhood doesn't have a lot of families and young kids and we're not a highly populated trick-or-treating area. Okay, what's next? Electrical decor and wires can invite chewing and turn deadly. Pets can also get tangled up, causing injury. I mean, this is common sense, right? So be mindful what and where wires are placed and keep your pets away from them. Wrappers, strings, and foil in your pet's tummy can cause illness or blockage. Did you know that emergency visits to veterinarians increase many-fold on the night of and day following Halloween? Poison ingestion, wrappers, toxic food ingestion, intestinal blockage, other tummy problems, electrical burns. Now, sadly, more than any other time of year, cats and dogs are targets of pranks and abuse. It's not just black cats. It's all pets. And it does happen. Pranks, abuse, stolen pets, very common on and around this holiday. You just don't want to imagine or believe the things that have been reported that evil people do to animals or pets on Halloween and any time of year for that matter. So again, my advice is to keep your pet at home, in your home, not in your backyard, in a safe, secure, calm place on Halloween. Now, even the most kid-friendly pet can be overwhelmed and scared, leading them to growl, snap, bite, bolt. So securing your pet is obviously important to prevent them from escaping and keeping them safe. And if your pet nips or bites or hurts a child or adult on Halloween, even if your pet is provoked, even if your animal's inside and the incident happens in your house, even if it's just an innocent jump by your pet on a person for love or attention or inadvertently knocks down a child or trips a person, I'm telling you, in the eyes of the law, your animal and you will be at fault. And some more obvious reminders, make sure your pet has the proper identification, microchips, along with identification tags. I mean, do I really need to say this? Yeah, of course I need to say this. And I know it's cute to want to trick or treat with your pet or dress your pet up in an adorable costume. Just think about what you're doing and think for two seconds whether it's safe for your pet and if your pet is okay with this. I know it's fun to take a picture with your dog in a tarantula costume and post it on Facebook, but come on, if your pet is not so keen on wearing an outfit, is it really necessary to do this to satisfy you? So you think your pet likes to dress up as super dog, then just make sure the costume doesn't interfere with his vision or movement or going to the bathroom. Try it on a few times before Halloween, and if he struggles and shows distressed behavior, then go to plan B, like no costume or bandana, although our dogs would rip a bandana off their neck and destroy it within a couple seconds. Okay, there you go. Just use common sense because the most important thing this Halloween is to keep your family and your pets safe. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. 